You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Amen. All right, I'm going to let the kids get out of here. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. I just found out before service that it's a special day today. Miss Janice McBride, today is your birthday, am I right? So, uh, let me say this about Miss Janice. Um, she served this church day in, day out, whether she was working in the flower beds or working with our preschoolers for, on Wednesdays and Sundays. She did that for decades. And so, let's just honor her with a round of applause. And I hope that, you know, some of us will take it as encouragement to step up and be more like a Miss Janice. We need more Janice McBrides in this world. All right, so we've been in this series on resilience uh, and resiliency. Um, And I'll be honest, I don't know. Today, I think it it fits, but today we're going to talk about the resiliency of identity, of knowing who you are and who God's called you to be and being that. And so part of what, uh, what started this for me was recently Alicia and I had gone, and it was just been some time, we went and we hung out with some folks, and I got to hang out, uh, I hung out with the husband, she hung out with the wife more, and after some time spent with these folks, you know, we're, we're coming back, and I told Alicia, I said, you know, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed my time with, with this person, but I said, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know if I know who they really are like the real them. And then it occurred to me, and I said, I don't even know if they know who they really are, the real them. That someone has been playing a part for so long in their life, and they've just been trying to be what everybody wanted them to be, that they didn't really even have original thoughts or wants and desires anymore or original emotions. They were too busy trying to placate to the people around them. And so the title for today's sermon would be, uh, we're going to go King James, Who Art Thou? Davion, I thought you'd appreciate the King James Version being used. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter 27. We're going to look at the life of Jacob, and we're going to take away from events in his life and look and see how God has shaped Jacob's identity and sometimes how uh, we fall into the same snares that Jacob fell into. And so in Genesis chapter 27, just to catch us up where we are, there's going to be a few characters in this story. We know that God makes the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. Abraham has Isaac, his son. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau were competitive from in the womb. They were battling it out, who would be the firstborn, who was going to get that blessing, and they battled it out during the womb, and they battled it out afterwards. And so whenever Esau's born first, remember Jacob comes clenching the heel when he's born. And Jacob's name means like heel grabber, supplanter, overtaker. That's why we get this derivative like trickster. He's somebody that's always trying to switch out to get his way. And so that's Jacob, and we start, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, even though I almost did. But then Shadriana, I thought of you, and I thought, she doesn't want to hear me read 27 verses to get to the one verse. So I'll just paraphrase it. 
Um, in the first five verses, Isaac's getting old. It says that his eyes are dim, and Isaac thinks that he's about to die. And so Isaac says to his son Esau, his firstborn, regardless of all the predictions that God gave, he says, Esau, go hunt, get me some game, prepare it just the way daddy likes it, and go and bring it to me so that I can bless you before I die. And so Esau sets out, but old meddling mama Rebecca's at the door. She's listening and overhears what's said in that moment. And so Rebecca goes to her son, Jacob, and she says, Jacob, I just heard your dad tell Esau this. He told Esau to go out, and she repeats word for word, go out, get game, prepare it just the way I like it so that I can bless you before I die. And there's this really cute moment between this dysfunctional family. And let me just say, like, every family's got a level of dysfunction to it. Don't be ashamed of yours. Just bring it to Jesus and let him deal with it. God chooses a family to change the world. And look how screwed up this family ends up being. Think about Isaac and Jacob. I mean, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, when they're like, Daddy, why doesn't Uncle Ishmael come to Thanksgiving dinner? Well, it's a long story. Your granddad ended up sleeping with your grandmom's servant. You know, all this stuff happens. This is a dysfunctional family. They have issues. Um, and so, anyways, that, that dysfunction's very much at play in this story. But here, in this moment, it's really cute because I think in verse... She goes through verse 5, she goes and talks about, gives him all the instructions, and then she says in verse 10, then you're going to take this to your, to your dad, and you're going to pretend to be Esau, and then he's going to give you the blessing before he dies. And what's, what I think's cute and sad at the same time, verse 11, but Jacob says to his mom, and it's this moment of like, mom, this isn't right, this isn't right. Esau's hairy and I'm smooth skinned mama they're gonna know that I'm tricking daddy and it's gonna it's gonna look like I'm trying to steal a blessing I uh, Jacob's biggest fear in this moment with his meddling mama Rebecca is that he's gonna the truth is going to come out it's also cute because it's like my skin's smooth darn this beautiful complexion I have and mama says and parents pay attention she says let the curse fall on me baby let the curse fall on me. And so she says in verse 13, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do as I say and go and get them for me. Now, Jacob's not eight. He's a man. He can make his own choices. He doesn't do that. And so they go and they come up with a clever ruse. They're going to put skins on his arms to make his arms feel hairy. They're going to put Esau's clothes on Jacob so that whenever Isaac smells those clothes, he's going to think he's smelling Esau because he can't, he can't see, but he can apparently smell. She's going to go and get these, he's going to go get these goats. Mama's going to prepare them just the way daddy likes it. And then they're going to go and they're going to pull off this grift to Isaac. And so we pick up in verse 18. He went to his father and said, my father. Um, Isaac says, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? In the King James, it says, who art thou? Right? It says, who art thou? Who are you? Verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. <clears throat> I have done just as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, he's not trusting this. How did you find it so quickly, my son? The and then check it out. This is how deceptive Jacob is. 
He says, the Lord your God gave me success. He's actually using God's blessing for his law, God's supposed blessing for his law. 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is of Jacob, but the hands are of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. And once again, are you really my son Esau? He asked. Jacob, over and over again, has every moment to back out of this, to come clean, to run away from this deception, from this sin. And Jacob's not doing it. It's like God gave him opportunity after opportunity. And we know because we've all been there where God's given us opportunity and we kept forging on ahead into our lie, our sin, whatever that was. And God gives him these moments. And here it is again at the end of verse 24. He says, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob says, I am. Then in verse 25, then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, and then I'm not going to read the blessing because it's a stolen blessing. And we see in this passage this really pivotal, pivotal moment where he says, who are you? And Jacob has the option of what he, is he going to be honest? Is he going to be truthful? Or is he going to be deceptive? And he lives up to the name Jacob, and he tricks his father. He supplants Esau with himself, and he owns, he acts like he's Esau. Jacob's not who he said he was. And if we're going to understand identity, then the question is, who are you? And some of us, y'all, we are not who we say we are. Because the Bible tells us that if we are Christians, right, and if we live with Jesus, then we can't live in this lie. And some of us, like, we, we, we get really painted up and pretty and we look good and nobody can tell the difference, but we know. Like, we put on layers of clothes and appearance and jobs and money and cars and relationships. We put all that in place so that everybody will believe who we say we are, but we know the truth is we're not who we say we are. When Paul writes to the church in Corinthians, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he asks in chapter 13, 5, he says, hey, some of you, he's like, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. He's writing to a church, and yet he's asking them to test themselves to see if they're in their faith. He knew there were some people in the church in Corinth that were not who they claimed to be. And so part of our issue in life is that none of us, we're all ever-changing. We're not who who we were today. So you look back at pictures of yourself, and you think, man, I've changed. My identity in a lot of ways has shifted. I've turned into a mama, I've turned into a dad, I've turned into a grandfather, whatever that looks like. We're all ever-changing. But some of us actually deceive everybody around us into thinking that we're something that we're not. And then, y'all, some of us deceive ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not. Have you ever met somebody that they weren't who they thought they were? Every every woman's like, yeah, I know a lot of men that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, 
we know people that they think have this view of themselves that's actually not true. And sometimes it's like overly negative. Like they look in the mirror and they see a fat slob and there's nothing wrong with them at all. And then sometimes they're Davion, they look in the mirror and they see David Hasselhoff in the 90s, baby. So they, they, they look at themselves and they, they see, I'm joking, Davion's not that way, but they see who they, who they think they are and it's not really who they are. One of the blessings about an encounter with God is that when he meets us, he shows this mirror and we get to see who we really are. If you're proud, arrogant, and think you've accomplished it, then God gives us, Paul says, the law, and we see all of our shortcomings. If you're down and humble and depressed, God gives us his grace and lets us see, hey, you're loved, you're valuable, and, I, and there's grace for you to come back. So some people aren't who they say they are. Some people aren't who they think they are. It's interesting that even in the New Testament, Jesus asked this question. He says, who do men say that I am? Why would Jesus ask that? That verse leads to like one of the most powerful moments in the New Testament where Peter rises up and he says, you are the Christ. But Jesus could have just said, hey, Peter, who do you, say, who do you think I am? But Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? So that he could find out kind of what the feel and the public was. And maybe he did that as an example for us to kind of check ourselves on who we think we are, who we perceive ourselves to be. And maybe we check that every once in a while with, who do other people say that I am? Who, how do other people react to who I am? A lot of us would never ask that question because we're afraid of what the answer is. But Jacob lies, he misrepresents, and why does Jacob do all of this? He wants the blessing of his father. He wants the blessing of a family member. And some of you live in bondage trying to get the blessing of somebody that's never going to give it to you, trying to be something that you're not so that they'll actually give you a blessing. And Jacob falls into that. He is acting like somebody else so that he can get his father's blessing, but he's forgetting his heavenly father. So here's the principle I think we could take away from the life of Jacob. And this is a trait of Southside, and it rubs some people the wrong way. Southside's genuine. Most people here, you're genuine, all right? Now, that's not the end of the principle. The principle's supposed to be that we're genuine, we're genuinely who we are, and we're genuinely being changed by God. A lot of people stop after genuine. Like, I'm, a, I'm just a genuine person. I just keep it real. I am who I am, right? We all have loud, messy people in our lives that talk like that. I just keep it real. No, yeah, you are real. A really terrible person. But we're genuine, and then we're genuinely being changed and worked on by God. And some of you, there's a moment maybe where God has shown you who you are. Ooh, got to get away from that. You got to get back into the Esau role. You got to put those layers back on so nobody actually sees who you are. And God's saying, hey, you've got to live a genuine life. You've got to be real, and then you've got to be really changed by God. So I want you to ask this question to yourself. Who are you? It's a weird question, I know. I want you to think for a moment. Some of you are just trying to look like you're listening, like, uh-huh. I want you to actually think. How would you answer the question if someone asked you, who are you? Some of you, it depends on where you're asked. You're asked in a job interview, 
which man, what a fun what a fun question to ask somebody in a job interview because it's so weird and vague. Because um, I'm Ledger Parker. Uh, but some of you, it depends on where you're asked. Who asks you? If you're asked at a conference, maybe you answer differently. So where, who? But let me ask you, who are you, and how would you begin to answer that question? There's a scene, there's an Adam Sandler movie. It's probably inappropriate, so I couldn't show you the clip. But in Anger Management, Jack Nicholson asked him, there, Adam Sandler's character has been sentenced to anger management. He's like a mild manner character. Why would he ever need anger management? But he has court ordered. He's got to go to one meeting. And they're in this circle of people in anger management, and Jack Nicholson looks at him and says, all right, we got a new face in the crowd. Uh, tell us who you are. And Adam Sandler's character's like, well, my name's so-and-so. I'm an executive assistant. I'm going to fight not to do an Adam Sandler impression right now, just so you know. I'm an executive assistant at a large pet food company. And Jack Nicholson stops and says, wait, you're telling us your job. You're not telling us who you are. So Adam Sandler's like, okay, well, I, um, I like to play tennis. And Jack Nicholson holds his pen. Huh? We didn't want your hobbies. We want to know who you are. And then Adam Sandler says, well, I think I'm a nice guy. Um, I try to do the right thing. And Jack goes, well, you're describing your personality. We simply want to know who you are. And then eventually Adam Sandler's character in frustration is like, I don't, I'm trying to answer the question. I don't think I'm doing it right. What did you say the first time? And, he, and Jack Nichols says, you want Lou to tell you who you are? It was an impossible question to answer. Like, how do you actually answer? And eventually he snaps, and then he gets more anger management. But how do we answer that question? And then my, my question to follow up would be is, like, where did faith follow up, like, land? Where did faith land in your answer? Because some of you would be like, my name is Ledger Charles Parker. I am, and I would list my professions. <laughs> I would list my role as a father and a husband. Like, I would list these different things. But the danger is, is that I never actually get to the fact that I am a follower of God. And so some of you know, whenever you went and asked, answered the question in your head, you lacked the faith piece in your answer. Jacob moves on. The good thing is, Jacob is able to get out of there, gets away from his mama. In the next few verses, Rebecca is going to tell Isaac, I don't want my son marrying one of these women around here. These girls from Byram, they're bad news. I want him to go to Pearl. <laughs> um, and so I don't want him to marry any of these women around here. I want him to go back home where my family's at, where the women are pure and sweet, right? Um, and so she pushes, and so Isaac brings Jacob in, and he's like, all right, Jacob, you got to go. I want you to go find a wife somewhere else, not around here. It's funny because Esau's listening, and he's like, well, you don't want me to marry women around here? I'm sure enough going to marry women around here. He goes and gets married more. Rebecca, who meddled and, and, and constantly was interfering in this role, in her role, she'll never see her pampered baby boy again. Once he leaves, she dies. He never, she never sees him again. Isaac, I don't, know that, I don't know that he'll see him again, but I know that him and Esau, Jacob and Esau eventually come back together to bury their dad. But Jacob moves on. And while he's on his way to the far-off land to meet his new wife that he hasn't met yet, doesn't even know she really exists, it says that he comes to a place and he lays his head on a stone. All of us should know the story. It was probably in your Sunday school books. And they, when he lays his head on the stone and he falls asleep, that he has this dream 
and God shows him angels going back and forth to heaven, and God speaks to him in that moment and says, and this is the first time that we have Jacob hearing from God in Genesis. God speaks to him and says, I'm going to make you a nation. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, and I'm about to make you a great nation. And so Jacob, who has, he's not who he said he was, he's pretending to be whatever he needs to be to get a blessing, he goes off, he's all by himself, probably, maybe for the first time, we don't know, he's homeless, lays his head on a stone, and he gets to hear from God, he gets a call from God on his life then. It's cool because the next morning he's like, oh, this is great. I, I, I'm, obviously God's here. And so he like anoints the stone, sets up kind of an altar. But Jacob moves on. He eventually goes, he meets his wives. Don't judge him, Miss Tracy, but yeah, he, he went for two wives. Um, he got tricked because what God had for Jacob was a worse, unrepentant version of Jacob and old Uncle Laban. And I was going to have like this big push and be like, Laban was a dealer's dealer, a trader's trader. Laban could go into any deal and get his way. He could trick, manipulate, and have you hold, leave you holding the bag while he took the goods. Laban was a guy that never lost on a trade. And then I was going to jokingly be like, and with new technology, we were able to look at archaeological evidence, evidence in the scripture, and try to generate a computer version of what Laban probably looked like, and I was going to show a picture of Willie Cox. <laughs> <clears throat> no, Willie, you're not Laban, but you are a good trader. Um, don't ever trade a vehicle, Willie, because he's coming out on top. You know he's coming out on top, unless he's doing it for ministry. But he goes and he meets Laban. He gets tricked into marrying a woman that he didn't love, and it's sad. He marries Leah, then he marries Rachel. Okay, I was making sure there wasn't a picture of Willie behind me, John. I didn't know how quick you could work. Um, he ends up marrying two women, has a bunch of kids, and check it out, by the end of this, after probably close to two decades, Jacob comes back, he's coming back home, and he's got wealth, he's got family, he looks the part, he is blessed by God, he, is, he looks more like a nation now than he ever has before, even though he pretended to be somebody else to get a blessing, but the problem is, even though Jacob has all of that stuff that's come to him, he's still not who he's supposed to be. Like before, he wasn't who he said he was, but now it's still, he's still not who God called him to be. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 32. So let's go there. See, he has all the stuff. He's got wives, children, property, wealth servants, male and female servants, but he's still missing a vital piece because Jacob's still not genuine and being genuinely changed by God. And so what we have here is like Jacob is obviously still living the life that God hasn't called him to live. And so he decides, hey, I got to go home. I need to go home. So he packs everybody up and he starts moving home. He's, he's afraid of Laban. He's afraid of Esau. He's still living in fear of all those people. And he decides he's got to get out of there. He's going to go home and he's going to have to face his brother Esau. So in Bethel, we have him get the call of God. And now he's about to get the correction of God. And so we go to chapter 32. And in verse 1, I just want to point out before we get to where we're going. Look at what it says. Jacob, he's got all this caravan of people. Also went on his way and the angels of God met him. 
Now, this is like a Disney version, right? So when, and then verse 2, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Manaam, and Jacob sent all the messengers ahead of him, and then we'll skip. He sends everybody ahead to, to Esau, and it's kind of like God's shoring them up. Hey, it's going to be okay. You're getting ready to meet Esau, but it's going to be okay. Now, what I like about Jacob is once he sees this place, there's angels there, and he has this like, this is the place of God. So this is the camp of God. What I like about Jacob, he sends everybody ahead, and then we're going to get down to verse 22, because he sends his wives and his 11 sons ahead, and now it's just Jacob in the camp of God. Now, what he's probably thinking is there's going to be this magical moment. I'm about to have my Bethel moment again, where I go to sleep and God gives me a dream and tells me how, how much he's going to bless me. I've already seen angels running around, and now I get to have this magical night with God ministering to me. And so we get to verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. And then so let's just stop real quick. Jacob, so Jacob was left alone. He's all by his lonesome. And so when he's by himself, listen, I've only got three kids, and I've only got one wife, all right? Um, I'm never alone. Uh, some of you men, like, you understand, like, when you have a wife and kids, like, you're never, I'm never alone. I'm either at work with people, or the, my alone time is in the car. Like, that's the only time I'm alone. So I can only imagine for Jacob, he gets everybody across, the noise of the family starts to die down, and Jacob starts to feel what it's like to actually be alone. He's got the call of God, and he's about to have the correction of God. Because this is where, this is the, one of the weirdest verses in all of Scripture. I think it's one of the coolest because it's so weird. In verse 24, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So this guy comes up out of nowhere. It's just Jacob by himself, and this guy appears out of nowhere and starts fighting Jacob. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, and let's just wait. All right, so Jacob's there. He's all by himself. He's ready. He's like, okay, God, come and minister to me. And God's like, <laughs> hits him back the head, comes in. Like, I just don't know what this guy's like. Coming up, ready to wrestle, ready to fight. The Bible tells us that they fight. And we don't know how long they fought, but we know it was at least until daybreak. So I don't know when it started. I just know when it ended. Jacob is attacked by what we believe because later on he's going to say he's wrestled with God that God in flesh, that he's actually wrestling with Jesus. Now, some of you, you read this passage like, I don't like the fact that Jesus got pinned. It sounds like Jesus lost. This Was this a tie? Um, when I wrestle my sons, I don't hurt them. Like, we're not out to kill one another. Even though the bigger Caleb gets my son, it gets closer and closer to me just wrestling, like, for my life. The idea is that, that God in the flesh wrestling with Jacob is like a dad wrestling with the son and is letting him show strength, letting him show. And 
eventually he's just raising it up enough to get, to get Jacob to break. And so they're fighting, and he's like, hey, let me go. It's going to be daylight, and people are going to be able to see us fighting. And Jacob's like, I'm not going to go unless you bless me. And then, I may have gotten this out of order, but at one point, this person touches, we see supernatural power, touches Jacob's hip and dislocates his hip in that moment. This is like, I'm, and if he could do it to one, he could have done it to the other. Like, at the end of the day, like, he could have won this, but Jacob would have been dragging himself out of here. And that wasn't the will of God. The will of God was for this one moment when Jacob is just demanding a blessing again. He wanted a blessing back in Genesis 27. He wanted God's blessing then, but he wanted it his way. And even now, he's demanding a blessing from God. And so what he says is, I won't go until you bless me. And this is what the man says. What is your name? The name of Jacob means heel grabber, supplanter, trickster, some people say. And he had to own in that moment, I'm a liar. I am a Jacob. And when he says that, it's a confession to God of who he really is. I'm not pretending anymore. I am a Jacob. I am a liar. I lie to everybody around me to get what I want. And he's there with the angel of the Lord. And then the, the man says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. You want resilience? Be somebody that knows who you are and knows who God's called you to be and you live in that to honor God. It says that, so Jacob asked, please tell me your name. I want to know who I'm dealing with here. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He knows God could have killed me at any point, and he spared me. And then it says, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So let me ask you, if you really want to know who you are, if you really want to have identity, and you want to have resilience that comes from having identity, then it all starts with who has God called you to be. Like, who's God created you to be? Who's he called you to be? And some of you are like, I don't know if there's been a call of God in my life. Some of you are not Christians. Because once you're a Christian, you have that call. You feel God moving you where you're supposed to go. And if you're just drifting aimlessly, you won't have any resilience because you don't have any reason. But if you walk with God and you submit to God and you're being affected by God, then God's now moving and pushing you in different places. So some of you, if you've always put on these layers of who you need to be just to get through life, but God gives you a way to actually get through life for a purpose, in his purpose, his plan. And so what we have a lot of times is like everybody's putting on layers to appear to be something that they're not, and they're doing it just for the ease of it. So let me throw this out there. And it was an epiphany I had recently. Sometimes we confuse ease with God's blessing. So what we think is, and I'll just be honest, I'm going to make my marriage vulnerable for a moment. There's times where, like, me and Alicia, do, we do crazy stuff because I'm a weirdo. Now, I'll say she influences me to make some of these decisions. But in the moment, things will run into challenges. And Alicia's really, it's cute now, but she'll be like, 
everything's going wrong. Are we sure that God told us to do this? And I don't mind that. That's a nice gut check. Are we sure that God told us to do it? But it's like, hey, baby, we're already in this. We can't get out of it now. So the whole second guessing, we're in a foxhole on the front line. We can't run back home. We got to fight our war. But some of us, we think anytime we have difficulty, well, what if God, God must not be calling me to this. The job got hard. The marriage got difficult. There's times where Alicia, Ethan, was young. He's a little baby. And he was just a little stubborn little kid, little snot. And I remember her being like, what are we going to do? And I joke, and was like, I will break him. Um, we're going we're gonna to help him obey. We're gonna, and, and look, he's a strapping young man, and he's, he's great. And it's, the idea is that God's call on us doesn't mean ease. And a lot of times we equate blessing with just success, the world's success. And that's not, I, I started thinking, I don't know of any example in Scripture where somebody following God's call on their life was easy. And the epiphany came when, you know, our church, we're so crazy. We, so we didn't have Sunday school for Christmas, but then we still did the Christmas lesson the, the week at, like we were in the new year and we were doing the Christmas story. Um, and we started talking about Mary and Joseph having this baby. Now you're, imagine, you're Joseph, and God has told you that she was a virgin, and that's not, she didn't cheat on you. She's pregnant with God's baby, all right? So you're Joseph. And then she's super pregnant, about to have the baby, and you've got to put her on a donkey and take her to a whole other city. When you get to that city, you know, Lauren pointed out, they're late, so there's nothing available. All the, the hotels are full, everything's full, so much so that there's probably not even room in a barn. That's already taken by people that got there first. They may have actually been in a corral. And all of us have had this Disney version of the birth of Jesus where, like, the cows are, like, sweeping for them and getting everything clean and ready, and the birds are, like, taking the blanket over the manger. But it wasn't that. Everything went wrong for these people. She's pregnant at the wrong time. The trip happened at the wrong time. They're in threat. They're, they're in legal trouble if they didn't go. There's not a room. They're homeless. If there was anybody on the earth that should have been like, hey, I feel like God's trying to send us a message that we shouldn't do this. It would have been Mary and Joseph. But if we want another example, we can go to 2 Corinthians again and go to chapter 11. So everybody just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I just want you to imagine, what if I was telling you, and I'll just make it, it's me. I'm coming to give you an update on my ministry, or I put it on Facebook. Because I need you to support my ministry. And we're going to paraphrase verse 16 and on. And I start to tell you guys, Okay, listen, y'all. Well, actually, okay, let's see. Okay, wait. We're going to go down to verse 24, or 23-ish. I've been in prison, y'all. I went to jail. Now, it's because I was serving God. I I'm telling you, I went to jail because I was there and I was serving God. I've been to prison frequently. I get beat up by the cops, and you'd all be like, cops would never beat an innocent man. <laughs> I got beat up by the cops. I've been exposed to death. I've almost died over and over again in verse 24. Five times I've gotten 40 lashes from religious folks. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time they even started picking up stuff and throwing it at me. 
Three times. I took three cruises. All three of them crashed. I've been through three shipwrecks. I spent a night in a day in the open sea floating. Now, that almost happened to me, but I made it. I've been constantly on the move. I can't stay around anywhere. I've been in danger. It's almost like the nature itself. Rivers in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow religious folks, in danger from non-religious folks. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the country. I've been in danger at sea, and I've been in danger from people that don't believe. I've worked. I go without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. And I'd have some little, some little American Christian tell me, well, you know, the Bible says the righteous. I've never seen the righteous forsaking or begging for bread. Well, they didn't see Paul. I think he wrote it. I have been cold and naked. What was he doing naked? Besides everything else, I constantly worry about the churches. Does anybody, does anybody that's weak fail and are led into sin and I don't burn, I burn inwardly? Can y'all imagine the correction if somebody actually listed this off as their ministry? You would have a bunch of do-gooder Christians. Paul, I want to do an intervention with you. There's only so much you can control. You shouldn't worry about the churches that much because ultimately that's their decision. And if they go into sin, you don't need to put that burn, you don't need to burn inwardly. Paul, I can only believe with the shipwrecks, the imprisonment, the police beatings, and everything that you're going through, that maybe you need to change your message up a little bit. And maybe you need to take some of the sharp rebukes that you're giving to the church. Maybe you need to make some changes. See, here's the thing. If we start looking at any biblical character that actually follows God's call on their life and has that, that identity, they have to be resilient. Because they're about to go through really difficult times. And so for us American Christians in our day and age, we end up, y'all, and this is just figuratively, Christians are just fat and bored, and they don't ever wrestle with God. They've already got it all figured out. And anything that comes up, any challenge that comes up in their life, the rich have it easy. And everybody in this room is rich, whether you want to admit it or not, because we're in America and we're, we're wealthier here. Um, here we have the options, but, well, we'll Google it. Well, we'll go to the doctor. Well, we'll go to our attorney. Well, we'll go to whoever, and we'll figure this thing out. And you never actually have to go to God. There's never that desperation. But if we truly live for God, we're going to meet challenging times. And so here's what I'll throw out there. That if you want to have identity then, and you want to have resilience that comes from having true identity, it has to be that you start to see the hurt that comes into your life. You're not a victim of it. Even though it's going to feel like it, when they started pelting Paul with stones, he felt like a victim. Right? You're not a victim of it. It's coming through God's hand to shape you into who God's called you to be. And so whenever we have the hurt, listen, people are going to hurt us all the time. In, in marriage and having children, like, you are going to be hurt. It's going to happen. People are going to fail around you. People that you love are going to fail you. But their failure, that hurt, comes into your life for you to move closer to God. Jacob's alone in this moment, and God didn't come, Jesus didn't come to hug him. Jesus came to beat him up. And so sometimes we look around at the challenges that we face, and it's Jesus kind of 
as a father wrestling with us to wake us up from the boredom and the, the other stuff that we would feel as, an, as a Christian and to get us to draw closer to God. And so here's what I want us to do. If we're going to be resilient, then we have to ask God, God, what have you called me to do? If you're a Christian, God, what have you called me to do? If you're not a Christian, then you've got to be saved, and God's calling you to get saved. But if you're a Christian, God, what have you called me to do? And let's just jump on the non-Christian thing real quick. If we wanted an example of Jacob in chapter 27, that he's, he's not who he says he is, think about how many people come in here and churches all over and they just pretend to kind of be interested in God. They just pretend to care enough so that they can get the blessing, right? And this is what I'll throw out there. I don't know. I, there's some people, I don't know how to wake them up from that. I don't know how to get them to be a Christian, except to say, I'm worried you're not one. And then they're so offended, they, go, they don't go to church anymore, and then I don't know if they become a Christian outside of that. Let me ask you, if, if you had this person that came in every Sunday and they came in and they had layers and you really believe there's never any fruit of Christianity, there's never any confession or repentance, they show no sign of being a Christian, is it better for them to stay in the church? Are they more likely to become a Christian if they stay here or if they go out in the world and they end up wrestling with God out there? I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's, it's on you to examine your heart, to test yourself, to see if you're in the faith. And if you're not, to respond to God at that moment. Oh, no, I can't have people know that I, was, I wasn't really an Esau. I was actually a trickster. No, that's confession. That's what it takes to be a Christian. And so for some of you, you actually have to investigate your life and say, wait a second, there is no sign of me being a Christian. And so here's where I stand on it. I thought about it this morning. That, that song, Miracle Child, and, you know, I honestly thought, like, God's going to have him be Miracle Child. No pressure, guys. Don't try it now. It, the worship got thrown off. We had things that happened. But in that song, Miracle Child, there's this, it's like, the idea is, I shouldn't be alive. My body was six feet under. I got one foot in the grave and no hope to be saved. I shouldn't be alive, right? And then I've literally been, like, almost killed. Eric almost electrocuted me to death early on in life. I'm just I've been electrocuted, almost drowned. No, um, but as someone that's almost died, and some of you can relate, there's this dynamic of I shouldn't be alive, but I sure as heck shouldn't be alive with all the sin that I've done, right? So that everybody can identify with that line of the song. The next verse is this, that God, he shouldn't be alive. We're going to Jesus now. His body was six feet under, figuratively. He was buried. One foot in the grave. There shouldn't have been, I don't know, the verses are probably changed there, but there shouldn't have been any hope. And in this moment, I'm listening to this, and my heart is just stirred up, and I'm like, oh, man. Like, that hits me. Because I shouldn't be alive, and he shouldn't either, but because of God's grace, he reaches and saves us because he's able to save. He is a miracle God. So then I have to ask myself, for the stick in the mud that that never stirs their heart. What, what do you do? This is somebody that can go to church, they'll go to church every Sunday or most. They'll go into their First Baptist, United Methodist, whatever church. They'll do it every Sunday 
and they will not be stirred by God. What is the answer for that person? I don't know. I think the only answer is confrontation from believers and the offense of the gospel. That whenever you talk to them about Jesus, they kind of get, oh, I don't like, I disagree with him on that. But I ask for you today to ask yourselves, are you who you say you are? Are you who you think you are? And maybe God's Holy Spirit, y'all, sometimes we put so much distance in that. My idea of the song was, if somebody's not stirred, I came up with this one, they're either dumb, okay, they, they don't listen to words, so they're like, what? He said it shouldn't be loud. Um, so I'm going to say dumb. They're so distant from God, it doesn't even resonate with them. Like they haven't thought of God, talked to God, think of God. They've got them so pushed out. If they're a Christian, they're so alienated from them, or they're not a Christian at all, they can't even respond to it. And then my third option is that maybe they were just distracted. Um, they just weren't listening. Um, it could tie with dumb. Um, let me ask this. When was the last time that you felt God stir in your heart? And it's a good question to find out if you're a Christian. That you actually felt convicted of a sin. It's one of the blessings. There, y'all, you know, there's times where you were sinning, you were all up in it, and then the Holy Spirit started working on your heart. You didn't want it to happen, but you couldn't help it. God started pulling that heart back, and you had to repent. When was the last time you felt God stir in your heart? It's a good test. So who are you? Are you who you say you are? Are you who you think you are? Are you responding to God's call on your life? Are you who you should be? I know it's a lot. And this is what I'll say, this is, and we'll wrap up with this. If you're not, then God is going to lay on your heart to repent and be saved, or repent and come back. If you are putting on layers and you're not genuine, you have all the facade figured out, then God's going to start to pull away those layers and show who you really are. So be genuine and then be genuinely changed by God. And now I'm going to look at all of the hurt that comes into my life. When I get beat up, when I get punched, when, and let me say this, a, a great quote, um, getting punched in the face one time greatly reduces your fear of it happening again. Once that happens, yeah, Ken's speaking from recent experience. Once that happens, you start to feel like, hey, God's got me. Everything that's coming to me is coming through his hand. I can handle it. And you start to roll with the punches better so that you can actually walk with God more closely. Everything that's hitting you, all the hurt that comes into your life is coming into your life for, for God to shape who you're supposed to be. Embrace it, respond to God in that moment, and, and repent or do whatever, build whatever God's calling you to do in that moment. Because in verse 31, in chapter 32, it tells us that Jacob, after the blessing, after the blessing, he limps away. He walks with a limp. And a lot of us think, oh, well, if you have an experience with God, he fixes the hip, right? No. He limps away. Because a limping Israel was better than a running Jacob. And some of you, you're so insulated away from hurt. I'm not going to let anybody hurt me. I'm not going to let anything hurt me. And you are a Jacob. And God's calling you to be genuine, to take the licks, and be an Israel. Because you're, you're better and more valuable to everyone around you, limping as an Israel, than you are running and jumping as a Jacob. Stop pretending, let's be genuine, and let's be genuinely changed by God. Let's stand up and pray.
Dear Lord, I thank you, God, for, for your word, and that, Lord, you do not hide the weirdness, you don't hide the mistakes of Genesis or anywhere in the scripture. You show us how your children constantly screw up, and God, how you save us from our screw-ups. And God, even as a Christian, we'll still make mistakes. But Lord, maybe, maybe you want us to be struggling with that thorn in the flesh, sin, addiction, whatever it is. Maybe you want us to be struggling with that and limping along, depending on you, than to be running as we see ourselves in the clear, not needing you. And so, Lord, I pray for everybody in this room. Lord, that right now they'll look into their heart, not think of anybody else around them, but they'll think about their heart, and they'll ask themselves, who am I? And is it who you've called me to be? Because, Lord, we don't need Jacob's pretending to be something fancy. We need Israel's being real and being really changed by you. So, Lord, right now I pray for everybody in this room. It doesn't matter if they're male, female. It doesn't matter if they're considered rich or poor, whatever. It doesn't matter because all of us can put on layers. God, I pray that we'll take all of them off. We'll reveal to you who we really are because you already know. And Lord, we'll repent where we need to repent. We'll step up where we need to step up. And we pray this all in your holy name, Jesus.